Amen. Thank you, Josh. Thank you also to our instrumentalists and our orchestra. And uh, thank you to my two daughters. By the way, I only have two daughters. I don't have three, as I said this morning. So Yvonne and Patricia were very surprised to discover that they had a sister. I don't know why, <laughs> but anyway, if you would turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, we're talking about on Sunday nights dealing with doubt. Matthew chapter 11, we have one of the greatest examples of this, the Old Testament and the New for that matter, were written for our learning and for our, for our instruction. And the Bible does not hesitate to lay forth the fact that the men and women of the Bible <clears throat> were human beings, people of like passions as us. And we see that this is true of John the Baptist, certainly one of the greatest man, humanly speaking, of the scriptures. And so in Matthew 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now this is a turning point in the book of Matthew. This represents an expansion of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist had already been in prison for some time at this point. Verse 2, now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel, the good news, preached to them. And a new beatitude the Lord gives us. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Let's pray. Father, we often deal with doubt in this life. Lord, we pray that through these passages of Scripture that we would learn truly to wait upon you and to trust you. And I pray that through your word that we would find added grace. Lord, help us not to linger in doubt, but help us, Lord, to have renewed strength to serve you. And to learn from these people of the scriptures, to learn from others around us, and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ray Pritchard referred to an article from December the 1st, 1993, a good while ago now. The article was called, Ho, Ho, No! The anti-clause is coming to town. The article described a visit by a man named Tom Flynn 
who was going to explain to rational, free-thinking people why they shouldn't, shouldn't celebrate Christmas. In 1993, he had published a book, or an article rather, The, Art, the Trouble with Christmas, and made hundreds of media appearances as the anti-clause. As a secular humanist, Flynn urged other non-believers to ignore Christmas altogether. He died in 2001. But here's the key quote from that. He said, If Jesus is not your Savior, Christmas is not your holiday. I want you to think about that for a second. Because sometimes the children of darkness are wiser in their generations than the children of light. It actually is true what he says. If Jesus is not your Savior, Christmas is not your holiday. What he's pointing out here is that you have no room to vacillate. You must make a choice. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then Christmas has a meaning, a transcendent meaning. And you must face that. If he's not your savior, though, on the other hand, then why should you celebrate Christmas? It's significant because there are a lot of what I call cultural Christians. And they do things, they celebrate certain Christian customs, but they don't know Christ as personal Savior. And one of the things that Flynn is doing inadvertently, but he is bringing people to a point of decision. You must be clear about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, this man's motive is totally secular. He wants to get rid of the idea of God and of Christ and of Christmas altogether. But you know, what he says sounds very similar if we go all the way to the other end of the spectrum to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. If Christ be not raised... Your faith is in vain. It is pointless. It is empty. Paul says, ye are yet in your sins. What do we conclude from this? Everything centers upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he born of a virgin? Is he the incarnate Son of God? Is he the one and only Savior? Because if he is then holidays like Christmas and Easter have a very special meaning. They're not just about trees and gifts and goodwill. It's about the true acceptance of Jesus as the Son of God. And in the end, you have to make a choice, either in this life or eternity. And there is no second chance, because once you close your eyes in death, your choice has been made. Everything centers around the person of Christ. So Pritchard says this, the central question becomes, is it true? Did he really come? Is Jesus really the one? 
There are some Christians who have asked this question because they have come under intense pressure, the pressure of persecution. And you may have come under this yourself. You may say, if I'm a Christian, if I do serve the God of this universe, then why do I face trouble? Why do I face heartache? Seems like that shouldn't go together. Well, let's look at the life of John the Baptist. Number one, John's struggle with doubt. John's struggle with doubt in 11 verses 1 through 3. My dad gave me a book years ago. It was by F.B. Meyer, and it's on John the Baptist. It's a great little book, good for devotional as well as expositional study. But one of the things that Meyer says is that John really did have uncertainty at this point in his life. Some commentators say that John was just asking for the sake of his disciples, that they doubted, and so John was just trying to direct their attention to Jesus and and to his works. But I think that John himself was struggling. And it's a great lesson for us because at some time in our life, we're going to struggle as well with who Jesus really is. Is he really who he says he is? And we may say this in different ways. We may say, does God care? Can he really do what he says he will do? There's all kinds of ways that we can express this. But we see, first of all, letter A, John's depression. F.B. Meyer says this, John was a child of the desert. The boundless spaces of the infinite sky had stretched above him in vaulted immensity when he slept at night or wrought through the busy days. And as he now found himself cribbed, cabined, and confined in the narrow limits of his cell, his spirits sank. Our circumstances, we know this to be true, but our circumstances should not dictate our spirituality. But at the same time, they do so often. When I make that statement that our circumstances, our our situation should not dictate to us how we operate spiritually, I'm not minimizing anyone's circumstances or the trouble that you're going through. There are some Eastern religions, there's even a cult called Christian Science that says that pain is an illusion, that the trouble and difficulty you face really are not there. And of course, that's not true. They are there. They are real. As Christians, we don't ignore pain. We don't ignore difficulty or circumstances. Years ago, I was uh, uh, touched in my heart. I knew a, a, a couple, a very godly couple. They worked together in, in, in the work of God. The woman passed away from cancer. The man of the family, the husband, and I think I've told this before, but uh, he was also the father of two children, and they were dealing with the loss of their mother. But he told the two children not to grieve, not to cry because their mother was in a better place. Now, I really believe that his heart was in the right place, but he gave bad advice. 
Because you see, we as Christians do grieve. Grief is something normal. And by the way, you are going to grieve. You're going to do it somehow or some way. It's going to come through because you're a human being, because you have emotions. But he told them not to cry. It was almost as if the pain or the sorrow was an illusion. That's not what I'm talking about here today. I'm not talking about some kind of stoic resistance where we just kind of pretend that we're stronger than our circumstances because we're not. That's going to get you into a lot of trouble in the end because eventually you're going to find yourself in a situation even when you're a man as strong as John the Baptist, when you are low spiritually. We don't deal with these things with our own resources. We don't deal with them in the power of the flesh. We don't just ignore them. We can deal with them, though, according to the grace of God. And that is the good news here. Well, let's go on to John's discouragement Matthew had recorded in chapter 4, verse 12, that John had been put into prison. The cause for his imprisonment was stated by Matthew later on in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, verses 3 through 4. And it was because of a wicked king and what he had done. So it was not John's fault that he was in prison. When John heard of all that Jesus was doing... He sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? Now, the, one, the words, the one who is to come, is a messianic title. So that's important for us to understand. John is actually asking, are you the Messiah? This is in verse 3. Art thou, and then here it is, he that should come. That is a title for the Messiah. Are you the Messiah based on words in Psalms 40, verse 7, in Psalm 118 and verse 26? John must have thought, if I am Messiah's herald, if I'm his ambassador, then what am I doing in prison? If you think about it, this was really an attack upon Christ himself by Herod. Herod was actually attacking the ambassador of Jesus himself. And John understood that, but John says, why am I in prison? Why hasn't Jesus taken the kingdom of Israel? Why hasn't he put down Rome and conquered them? Why hasn't he rescued us? Now, isn't that what we ask in, in other situations if I'm a child of the king, then why am I in rags? Why do I face trouble? Why do I face hardship? Why does it seem like some people never get their comeuppance, but they seem to get away with sin indefinitely? They seem to do wrong with impunity. Why is that? We'll look at the secret of that in just a moment, but that's what John was asking. Letter C is disillusionment. John had been expecting a conquering Messiah who would mete out justice upon his enemies and establish his throne. Let me ask you a question. Do you yearn for that? 
I know I do. I yearn for a kingdom of perfect righteousness. At the same time, I'm not often as merciful as I should be. You see, if the Lord Jesus would have come back to this earth when I was 18 or 19, sometime before I had accepted Christ as Savior, I would have been one of His enemies that He would have put down. I need to understand that. You see, there's a balance there. Before He comes, we ought to be doing everything that we can to spread the good news. But at the same time, evil ought to make us angry. And I'm not saying that we, we would wish anyone, any sinner, to go to hell. And by the way, if you could see hell and how horrible hell is, I, I don't care who it is, you would not want anyone to go there. Not the worst person on the face of this earth, if you could see how terrible hell is. And to think that people are going to go there for all eternity. We ought to be doing everything that we can to win the loss to Christ. At the same time, we weep and we are angry. There is a righteous anger over sin. We have to keep these two in tension. I don't know about you, but for me it's hard sometimes. But we have to. We have to keep these two in balance because that's what we find in God's Word. We find both the mercy and the justice of God. John wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom and to mete out justice upon his enemies. It doesn't work that way in this life all the time. Now it will. Jesus will return one day and he will mete out justice. But don't get discouraged if he doesn't do it in your timing. Victor Culligan wrote a book entitled, Ten Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Well, that's a great title, isn't it? That'll pique your interest. Ten Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. But he said this, with the rise of the health and wealth gospel and prosperity preaching, we have become accustomed to a comfortable version of the Messiah. It is a picture of Jesus I call Jesus Light. Great taste, less demanding. Jesus is only interested in my happiness and nothing more. He wants me to be financially comfortable, physically fit, mentally and emotionally stable. He never demands of me anything that would cause these basic goals to be missed. Difficulties, trials, and hardships in my life are only there because of a lack of, of faith on my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. Boy, how much of this you find these days. The teaching of Jesus, Culligan says, was often harsh. He was not a preacher of convenience. And by the way, John wasn't either. That's why he lost his head in the end. He was not a preacher of convenience, but hardship. Not a preacher of comfort, but suffering. In the preceding chapters, especially chapter 10, 
It's hard to miss Matthew's emphasis on suffering, in particular persecution. Let me just give you some examples. Go to Matthew chapter 10. We don't have time to read all of these verses, but in Matthew 10, 14, Jesus speaks of the possibility of an unfavorable reception as he sends out his disciples on a preaching tour. Not everyone, Jesus says, is going to welcome you with open arms. Not everyone is going to be excited about the message that you bring. In verse 23, he shows us the reality of persecution. They persecute you in the towns and villages. In verse 16, Jesus speaks of being sent out as lambs or sheep in the midst of wolves. And then, in verses 17 through 19, you are brought before courts to be flogged and then dragged before Gentile rulers to be sentenced to jail or death. I get convicted when I read these verses. I face some persecution in my life, but not that much. I've had doors slammed in my face. I've had one person threaten to shoot me when I was out evangelizing. I've had some of my family members avoid me, but I've never been imprisoned. I've never been beaten. I've never been disowned. When I came here this evening, the thought never crossed my mind that I would be in danger because I was worshiping the Lord. You see what a blessing that is? And how often we take it for granted? And how many people, how many of our brethren and sisters in this world don't have it? And throughout church history have not had it? It's something to be thankful for. Whatever brand of persecution, though, that you go through, and, and there are types of persecution that you will have to go through. But Jesus pointed this out. In fact, in this section, our Lord speaks of one's family becoming one's enemy to the point where brother turns against brother, father against child, child against parents, family members delivering over one another to the authorities. Can you imagine that? Your son turns you in because he knows that you're a Christian. Jesus speaks of being maligned, verse 25, of being hated by all, verse 22, of martyrdom, verse 21, 28, 38, 39. You can find this throughout chapter 10. It goes right along with what's happening. Christ does not cover over these things. But what he does do is to give us consolation. I think this is especially important for those of us who have lived, we could say, in the lap of luxury compared to others, especially with regard to religious freedoms. There may come a time when we no longer have the freedom that we do. And persecution may come in a variety of ways. Our, our tax exemption may be taken away from us. Or there may be other penalties for serving God. You may be hindered at work from receiving certain promotions. By the way, people already go through that now. 
if they know that you're a Christian in certain professions. But there may even be jail time and yes, even death. People say it could never happen here. But do we know that? It could absolutely happen here. That's what they've said in other nations and in other times. That's what makes Jesus' statement of consolation so comforting. In letter A, he talks about the discipline of waiting. The discipline of waiting. I want to read you something by F.B. Meyer at this point. You see, in verse 4, Jesus says, Go and show John these things. He didn't say, okay, John, I'll, I'll do a miracle. I'll, I'll uh, spring you out of jail. I'll raise an angelic army. And they'll march on Rome. He doesn't say that. He says, no, there's going to be a waiting period. There's going to be a time when you're not always going to see justice immediately upon this earth. F.B. Meyer says this, Christ's answer to John the Baptist was indirect. He did not say, I am he that was to come, and there is no need to look for another. Had he done so, he might have answered John's intellect, but not his heart. After a few hours, the assurance would have waxed dim, and he would have questioned again. He might have wondered whether Jesus were not himself deceived. One question always leads to another, so long as the heart is unsatisfied. God might, if he so willed, have written his message in starry characters across the sky. This might have awed the intellect, but it would not have convinced the heart. Have you ever met anyone who said, well, I just need something from God, I need better evidence? Let me ask you this, what would you accept? What more could God do? What if he did some kind of spectacular miracle? You would probably find some way to explain it away if your heart isn't right with him. That's what Meyer is saying. Jesus has to address the heart of man, not just the head or the intellect. And if your heart is not right with God, there's no miracle that's going to convince you. And there's no amount of evidence that you're going to receive until God opens your heart supernaturally. And by the way, I'm not against evidence. The Bible itself gives that. You can see 1 Corinthians 15. But friends, God must work in the heart if man is going to truly respond to him, because our problem is not just a head problem. It's not just with our intellect. That's why it's not just a matter of explaining to people better or giving them more information, as, as great as that is, that they need something even better than that. The whole man has to be addressed. And even as God's people, that's what we need. We need God to deal with our hearts. F.B. Meyer says this, Were this God's method of doing something spectacular, we should miss the benediction on those who have not seen and yet have believed. We should miss the discipline of waiting until our doubts are dissolved 
by the Spirit of God. The intellect might be temporarily overpowered with the evidence, but the soul, the heart, and the spirit would miss the true knowledge that comes with purity, faith, and waiting upon God, the deepest knowledge of all. The heart must be taught to wait, trust, and accept those deep intuitions and revelations which establish the being of God. That's the discipline of waiting, and that's what God does in our lives. That's what faith is all about, is trusting God even when I don't understand fully what He is doing. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I'm going to keep trusting God. That leads us to letter B, and that is the display of power. We can see God's handiwork all around us. It's there for people who have eyes to see. Again, we can ask the question, if a person is unsatisfied, what would satisfy them? But the truth is, is that God has put within each one of us knowledge of himself. And yet still man refuses that knowledge that God has given. But God has displayed his power and Jesus had displayed his power. Go back, Christ says. Report to John what you've heard and what you have seen taking place. The blind being given sight... Lame people walking, lepers being cured, the deaf hearing, the dead raised to life. This had never happened before. On this scale, yes, there had been miracles like this, but never before so many and so dramatic. And then he adds the good news being preached to the poor. What he's doing is, and John would have known this as a student of the scriptures, but Jesus is saying not only are you to look at the evidence around you, but also look to the scriptures. I want you to go with me to Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Isaiah is talking here, giving a prophecy of what is going to happen when the Messiah will come. He that should come. This is what will happen. And of course, Isaiah speaks of two different comings. But this is part of what would happen. And this is what happens in his first coming. Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Then Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Does that sound familiar? The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart or a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out in streams in the desert. A prophecy of the Messiah's healing ministry. And it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and what he was doing all around that area. Isaiah 61, if you'll go there with me. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Great, great verse that Jesus himself quotes in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Bible says this, Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Messiah here is speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings or good news, the gospel, unto the meek or the poor. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. What is Jesus telling John? Not just to look around you and to see the miracles, but go to the scriptures. You'll see from the scriptures that I am he. I am the Messiah who was to come. And that leads us to letter C, the directive to persevere. I want you to turn with me to one more passage, Isaiah 40 and verse 25. Isaiah 40 and verse 25. As we consider the attributes of God, as we pray through the attributes of God, we need to ask ourselves certain questions. We've always heard that God is all-powerful, but what does that have to do with me? Sometimes we don't always connect the dots. And this is a way to do it, Isaiah 40 and verse 25, because it is prophesying about a time when Israel would later go, or Judah would go into Babylonian captivity, and they would be questioning not only God's goodness, but His power. Isaiah 40 and verse 25, God says this, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Isaiah 40 and verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by the names of the greatness, by the names, by names, by the greatness of His might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. In verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest to Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. In other words, God doesn't know what's happening to me, apparently, or I wouldn't be in this condition. I wouldn't be in this situation. And they're questioning God's justice here. Because when they say my judgment is passed over, it's as, it's as if you had taken a claim to court and the judge ignores you and you have no justice. Judah is saying this to God. It seems as though God doesn't care. Or maybe he's just not powerful enough to meet our need. And what is God's reply? Verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? Aren't you glad God never gets tired? To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. There it is. There's the connection point. What does it mean that God is omnipotent, that He is all-powerful? We say that and we, we've known it from children. But here's the lesson that I can take, and that is that He can give me the power to wait upon Him and to trust Him in the midst of trouble. He doesn't promise to take away trouble in this life, but He can do something so much better. And that is, He can strengthen me through this trouble and through these trials. 
He can make me more godly through this situation that I'm in. And that's what I have to look for. He giveth power to the faint. Verse 30, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. We grow older. We don't have the strength that we used to. But then the great, verse 31, but they that what? That wait upon the Lord. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? Well, it means to trust him in the sense of perseverance and endurance. Actually, wait upon him is a, is a good way of saying it because it involves patient endurance by his grace. And that really does involve trusting him when you don't have the immediate answer. But God promises that as you do that, that your strength will be renewed. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. In God's time, he will give encouragement and strength. Wait upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these admonitions from your word. We thank you that you do not leave us in our discouragement, but we thank you for your holy word, for the encouragement that it gives us each day, and the admonition to persevere. We thank you for the grace to keep going each day, knowing that one day our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, and he will set all things right. But in the meantime, help us to live for him. Help us to learn the discipline of waiting by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.